Pleasure to have Mark Fatata with us this weekend, opening God's Word, helping us to love the Psalms in a newer and a richer way. We are very excited to have him with our joint Sunday school and then for the sermon here this morning. I encourage you to, uh, to take what we've worked on this weekend and continue to apply and look into it that we would love God's Word in its fullness more and more, particularly uh, the Psalms that he has given to us. Let's pray as we commit our time this morning. Almighty God, we praise you and we thank you on this Lord's day that we might rise, that we might gather, that we might worship and celebrate, that we might come into your house with thanksgiving and praise, and that we might leave this place today having been changed by an encounter with the true and the living God. Lord, experiencing your word, Father, having it wash us, nourish us, strengthen us, renew us. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the man who looks into the mirror and walks away forgetting what he's seen. But Lord, that we would look deep into your word, Father, that we would see Jesus clearly and we would worship you all the more. Be with our speaker today. We thank you for Mark. We thank you for his service to us as a congregation. We pray, Lord God, that he would leave this place encouraged and blessed by his time meeting new friends, enjoying a new community, that you keep him safe in his return home and that you be with his family, Lord God. We ask all these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Mark. Welcome. Well, we have been uh, looking at the book of Psalms through the lens of discovering the purpose of the Psalms in particular. It's a manual of instruction that God has given us so that we can experience more of the uh, flourishing life that God created us for and that Jesus came and redeemed us for. And we've seen that that flourishing life is a doxological life. That is to say, we know who we are. We're people of destiny. We know we're not headed nowhere. We're headed somewhere. And where we're heading is glory, uh, our glorification for the glory of God. We've also seen from Psalm 1 that that flourishing life is a happy life. Happy in the sense of experiencing well-being in every area of life. And the twin cousin of the happy life is the holy life. It's a life that is governed by God's word. And then yesterday in the second session, we saw that the flourishing life is a majestic life, that it's really important to understand who we are fundamentally as those who have been created in the image of a glorious God, and therefore we are glorious creatures, right? Good morning, your majesty. Uh, We learned about understanding that we're the center of the universe and that we are royal uh, and uh, that we don't get big-headed because everything that we have and everything that we are is a free gift to us from God. And so this morning, as we finish up in Sunday school and the worship service, we're going to look at two more dimensions of the flourishing life from the book of Psalms. And this morning, we're looking at the Psalms and the honest life. Psalm 1 really paints an ideal picture, doesn't it? That God's people are like a tree planted by streams of water. They yield their fruit in season. Their leaf never withers. And whatever they do succeeds. And we looked at how that is exactly what Psalm 1 promises us. And we also considered the fact that in the world in which we live, in between the fall and the resurrection, things don't always work the way God designed them to work. And sometimes, were we to take a weekend sometime and study the wisdom literature, we would realize that the book of Proverbs, like the book of Psalms, uh, can be summarized this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And what will your life like be like? It'll be a straight path. Well, somebody once said, you know, I read uh, the book of Proverbs. I tried it. It didn't work. My life was more like a maze than it was a straight path. I think I'm going to write the book of Ecclesiastes. Another guy said, I tried it too. Didn't work so well for me. In fact, my life was like a deep and long dip that I went through. I'm going to write another book. I'm going to call it Job. So you see, Proverbs, like Psalm 1, sets out the ideal. 
Trust in the Lord. He'll make your path straight. In reality, sometimes life's path isn't straight. Not between the fall and the resurrection. Sometimes it's like a maze, Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it's like a deep, deep dip, uh, the book of Job. And that's what we want to look at this morning. How do we, how do we be Jeremiah? Remember Jeremiah 12.1? God, I've got a bone to pick with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Psalm 1 says it's not supposed to be that way. How do we handle those, well, it's kind of natural for us to call them the negative emotions. But you know, by calling them negative emotions, that puts them in a pretty bad light right away, doesn't it? Like they're somehow bad and we've got to get rid of them. Uh, But they really are wonderful windows into who we are, what life is like, what God is like. Have you ever stopped and thought for a moment about jealousy? How many of you want to be jealous? How many of you realize that God says, my name is jealous? So that even in our jealousy, we can learn something about the true and living God. Uh, God grieves. God is angry. God is happy. God rejoices. God is sad. All of these different emotions, and if we, if we don't embrace those emotions biblically, we're not only missing an opportunity to understand ourselves, but we're missing an opportunity to understand who God is as well. Because God has revealed himself to us as a God who feels uh, the things that we feel. John Calvin, he refers in his commentary on the book of Psalms to the book of Psalms as an anatomy of every part of the human soul. Now, if you wanted to take a... If you went to a, a local community college and you wanted to take a continuing education class, you know, they offer adult education classes, and you look through the catalog and you say, oh, I think I'm going to take a class on anatomy. What would you be studying in an anatomy class? All the parts of the body. And Calvin says that's the book of Psalms. It's an anatomy textbook, only it's not an anatomy of the parts of the body. It's an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He says, everything that you can feel in life, every emotion that you can experience, is found articulated in one psalm or another. And that's what we want to look at this morning, especially how to handle those times in life when those, when those dark emotions flood our souls. When you feel angry, when you feel sad, grief, perplexity, what do you do with those? That's what we want to look at. How do you, how do you flourish with those dark emotions that we all experience from time to time? Uh, let's look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? (laughs) How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So Psalm uh, 13. Just one thing about the, uh, the Psalms. Probably in your translation, as you were watching us go through this text, you may have noticed that at the end of verse 2 and before verse 3, you see a little bit of extra white space. Yes? 
And then if you go down to the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, you probably see a little bit of extra white space. Uh, that's not an accident. It's not the printer just wanting to try to get the page balanced or anything. If you're writing a letter to someone, you put your words together. Words that are closely related to each other all get put together in something that we call a paragraph. And uh, poetry has the same kind of thing, Hebrew poetry. We don't call it a paragraph, we call it a strophe, but it's the same thing. A strophe in poetry is just like a paragraph in prose. It's a, it's a group of poetic lines that are more closely related to each other than they are to the surrounding lines. And your translators are going to kind of help you in reading through the psalm by batching those those poetic lines together into strophes. And the way they tell you that you're, in, that you're at the end of a strophe is they put a little bit of extra white space in. So that's what those things are there for. Just think of them as like... Uh, paragraph markers. One of the ways, as we saw the other day, that in English we mark a paragraph is by indenting, but another way we mark is by using a block paragraph, but by putting extra white space in. This is the exact same thing. So as you read, pay attention to those as you're reading the Psalms, because uh, remember when your kids were little and they were going uh, to solid food? How many of you like took a, a 12 ounce T-bone steak, put it on the plate and said, have at it? You didn't, what did you do with that meat? You cut it up into chunks. And chunking is actually a technical term in education. Uh, it's easier to digest information if it's in smaller chunks. And so instead of studying a whole psalm, Study it in its chunks that we call strophes. And by the way, if you have any kind of um, responsibility to lead a Bible study or to give a devotional on a psalm sometime, if you open up a psalm and you see that there are three chunks or three strophes, how many points might you have in your devotional? Three. And you might focus your attention on what's the main point of this first chunk? What's the main point of the second chunk? What's the main point of the third chunk? Now, since I just said that, probably be a good idea if I did it, right? So, as you can see from your outline, we're going to look at Psalm 13 in three chunks. And each one of them is going to end with that white space in your <coughs> text. <coughs> Excuse me. And these, these three chunks are going to teach us how to flourish when we're in those times of negativity. How to flourish when those dark emotions fill our souls. And here's our first point from verses uh, 1 and 2. Say how you feel. The first thing we want to do in processing and flourishing when the emotions are dark, is to be honest and just say how we feel. Now, the fact of the matter is, you have feelings. Um, I was asked a, a couple of questions on the personal side, and I talked about how in, in growing up, I, I grew up in a Hungarian home where the men were not uh, emotionally expressive, <laughs> I never doubted, ever, I never doubted that my father loved me. I'll bet I was, I'll bet I was 45 or 50 before I ever heard my dad say, I love you. He did. I knew it, but he never expressed it in words. That's just not the way we rolled back in the day. Um, you, you do have feelings. One of the ways we know you have feelings is that the Bible reveals God as having feelings. And the Bible says we're created in God's image. And so we, too, have to be people who have feelings. For some of us, they're buried pretty deep. For some of us, they're right on the surface. 
You see, we're different in this regard. But we all need to learn to say how we feel. Now, your, your feelings can go in three directions. Remember when Jesus was asked uh, what the great commandment was? What's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But then he went on to say, can't stop there. You've asked about the one greatest commandment, but there are really two. The second one is, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there are three relationships that you have. You have a relationship with God. We can call that theology. You have a relationship with other people, your neighbor. We can call that sociology. And then you actually have a relationship with yourself. And we can call that psychology. Now, the last one is a little bit strange to us, maybe. We don't normally think of having a relationship with ourselves, but we do. And trust me, some of you have a pretty good relationship with yourself. Some of you don't have a very good relationship with yourself. You don't like you. Often you don't. How do you know what your relationship with yourself is like? Listen to the tape player as it goes off through the week and you do various things. How much time do you spend saying, that was a good job. Nice work. You did that again? See, you talk to yourself. And in general, you approve or you disapprove. Some of you really like yourself, and this is not arrogance. You just have a healthy self-image, and you like yourself, and you think you're doing okay. You know you make mistakes, but others, you're, you're really critical of yourself. You're very hard on yourself. Uh, by the way, how we relate to ourselves really spills over in how we relate to other people. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So you have feelings that go in three directions. You have feelings in relationship to God. You have feelings in relationship to others. And you have feelings in relationship to yourself. Let's look at this psalm at those, in those first two verses. Just look at those verses. Look at the words. How did David feel in his relationship with God? Based on these verses. Anybody? What's that? He, he felt alone. He felt like, what's the, what's the A word? Abandoned. He felt like God had abandoned him. Have you ever felt that way? You have. Have you ever admitted it? To God? Have you ever said, God, I feel like you've abandoned, you have let me down. Sometimes we think, well, that's not very spiritual. Good Christians don't say that. Well, I think David was a pretty good Christian. And that's exactly what David is saying. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? See, in the beginning there, he's talking about his relationship with God and how he feels like God has abandoned him, how God's forsaken him, how God's let him down. And he doesn't pretend that all is well. He doesn't put on a smile and say, hey, isn't it a great day? He says, no, I got to go to prayer and I got to talk to God and I got to tell him exactly how I feel. The Holy Spirit gives us the freedom in the book of Psalms to own our feelings, to embrace them and to talk to God about them. Now, look at the beginning of verse two. How does David feel in his relationship with self? First two lines. Sad. My translation says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That's a weird way of kind of saying that he's perplexed. But how long must I have sorrow in my heart? See, notice in in, in verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Then notice the shift in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all day long? He shifted from talking about his feelings in relationship to God to his feelings in relationship to self. 
grief, sorrow, sadness. And then notice at the end, he talks, at the end of verse 2, he talks about uh, uh, how he feels in relationship to others, here in particular the enemy. How long shall my enemy exalt over me? And we've got to read this in context to know how David's feeling. We didn't look at Psalm 2. We talked a little bit about it. But in Psalm 2, God basically promises David this. When you go to battle, you win, they lose. So that's David's expectation, right? But what's David experiencing? They're winning, he's losing. That's frustration. Frustration is very simple. Frustration is having a goal and being blocked from reaching it. Frustration is what you feel when you're running a few minutes late to church on Sunday morning and you're on a two-lane road and somebody has the audacity to go the speed limit. <laughs> See, uh, that, that, that form of frustration is called anger. If, you're, if you have a goal and you feel that you're being blocked by the goal from somebody else, you're frustrated in the form of anger. If you have a goal and you think you're the block... That frustration is called guilt. Guilt and anger are just the same thing going in different directions. Guilt is I'm frustrated at you because you're blocking me. Guilt is I'm frustrated at me because I'm blocking me. Uh, but it's all the same kind of thing. And so we see here that, that a variety of emotions come out in this psalm. What is David doing here? David is simply learning that he has feelings. Say how you feel. And that means really express them in words. I mean, really, I feel angry. See, if you say to, uh, let's say you say to a friend, I feel like you never pay attention to me. As soon as you say like, you're not expressing a feeling anymore. You're really expressing what you're thinking. No, not I feel like, I feel angry, I feel sad, I feel perplexed, I feel jealous. Learning how to just express how you feel in words. Why? Because stuffing your feelings doesn't work. Turn to Psalm 39. Here David says, I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, you've never done this before, but somebody you know has. You know, you, you walk in and you say hi, and you get blasted with a shotgun. And you say, what did I say? It's the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Somebody's mad at you, and they're not saying anything because they're being good Christians. Uh, and so they're holding it in, and another thing happens. And it builds, and it builds, and they're not saying anything. Then accidentally you do one really small thing, and it blows the lid off of it, and they just dump all of this built-up anger on you, yeah? See, stuffing your emotions does not work. I remember uh, this new technology that was going to speed up cooking. It wasn't a microwave. This is before the microwave. It was called the pressure cooker. When I was a kid, my mother made uh, spaghetti, her own sauce, from scratch. She started in the morning, about 8 o'clock, and uh, that would just cook and simmer on the stove 
all day long. Well, then she started to work at Geneva College, where I went, you know, the good college, better than Grove City. <laughs> and um, so she, was, she got this thing to speed up the process called a pressure cooker. I can still hear the jiggle, you know, that little knob that's jiggling on the top, cuts like the cooking time in half. And I remember one time when accidentally, somehow, my mother took that jiggling thing off. And where was the spaghetti sauce? It was all over the ceiling. Yeah, I'll never forget that. And that's how we are often, right? That's when we're not handling our emotions according to the pattern in Psalm 113. We're thinking that good Christians don't feel that way, and they certainly never say that they feel that way until eventually it just explodes, and we do more damage because we've been pretending not to feel these things than if we were just honest. The flourishing life is an honest life. Say how you feel. Now, to whom do you express these things? Well, certainly you have to start by expressing how you feel to yourself. That's really where it begins. You've got to trust yourself enough to admit to yourself how you're feeling. And then you can go the next step and in prayer bring these feelings to God. Trust me, his shoulders are big enough. He can handle it. By the way, he already knows when you're sad. You might try to pretend and fool others, but you can't fool God. He knows how you feel, so just be honest. Bring these to him in prayer and uh, and tell him exactly how you feel, like Jeremiah did, like David is doing here in Psalm 113. Now, what about others? Well, we really need a little study of the book of Proverbs to deal with that and the book of Ecclesiastes because there is wisdom. Sometimes there's a difference between the right thing and the wise thing. And it's not always wise to tell other people how you feel. There's no, like, algebra book here that you can look up. Okay, I'm in situation uh, 132. Do I say something or not? No, no. This is a matter of wisdom. And unfortunately, you grow in wisdom by making mistakes. And you say, well, I'll not do that again. So there probably been times when you, when you did the right thing and you told somebody how you felt and it blew up in your face. Uh, it was the right thing, but it probably wasn't the wise thing to do. And so whether or not you express to others how you're feeling, always to yourself, always to God, But whether you bring those feelings up with other people, there are just a lot of factors there. Who that person is, the nature of the feeling, the nature of the relationship that you have with that person, where that particular person is uh, in their own walk. Um, Let's just take, as an illustration, uh, law and grace. I did a fair amount of preaching when I was a pastor in Maryland in uh, local prisons and state penitentiaries. And trust me, when I was preaching on a Sunday afternoon in a prison, I did not need to hammer the congregation with the law, convincing them that they had done something wrong. No. I tell you, when the church in the prison sings, At the Cross... They sing it with a gusto and with a fervor. Was it for crimes that I have done? He hung upon the tree. They didn't need to be hit over the head with the law. They needed to be picked up with grace. Oh, if I'm outside of Washington, D.C., and I'm in a suburban uh, church, an affluent church, they might need a little more convincing that they've done something wrong and that the wage of their sin is death. So you see, you always have to know not just what is the truth, but who is the person to whom I'm bringing this truth. And as one of my mentors used to say, you've got to speak to people's listening. 
You've got to understand where they are and what they're in a position to receive from you. And you can't just say whatever's on your mind because it may be of no help to them. That's wisdom. And, and I wish I had a, a little manual for of check. We'll check one, two, three. This is when I speak. Check three, four, five. Nope, don't speak here. You just have to grow and mature and depend on the word of God, depend on the spirit of God uh, to learn when you say how you feel to other people. So what do we do in processing these emotions? The first thing is we say how we feel, verses 1 and 2. Next thing we do, verses 3 and 4, ask for what you want. That's what David does. Notice that we have shifted, and David is now asking questions. He's asking for things. Uh, But you can't ask for what you want before you are in touch with what you want. And you won't be in touch with what you want until you realize that it's okay to want something. It's okay to want something. Psalm 37, there's a well-known verse there, says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I've heard a real spiritual interpretation of that before, that if you're really spiritual and you trust the Lord, he'll tell you what to want. That's very spiritual, right? Just in what the psalm means. It says, trust in the Lord, and he'll give you what you want. But you've got to be aware of what it is that you want. And it's kind of deep-seated in us uh, as evangelical Christians that good Christians don't want anything, you know. Um, and we can even defend it from the Bible. Let's go to uh, not 37, but flip those, and you have what psalm? 73. Let's look at Psalm 73 so that I can prove to you from the Bible that you're not supposed to want anything. Verse 25. I'll bet you know this verse. Whom have I in heaven but you, God, and there is nothing on earth I desire but you. Now, there's a good Christian. Only one desire, God. How impossible is that? How contrary to the way God has made us is that? Guess who created us with desires? God did. If he created us with desires, and if he says in Psalm 37, uh, delight in me and I'll give you the desires of your heart, desires must, not all desires are good, right? Right? But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that desire is bad. We are not Buddhists. We are Christians. And we affirm the goodness of God's creation and the way he has made us. Let's take two desires. How many of you have lived your whole life with no desire for sex? How many of you have lived your whole life with no desire for food? Yeah, those are two very powerful drives that God has built into us, not only for our survival, but for the fulfilling of the mandate in Genesis that we be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, that in my estimation, that's not a command, be fruitful and multiply. Kind of like if I say, have a nice day. Am I giving you a command? Have a nice day or else. So have a nice day is a wish. And in Genesis, when God says, be fruitful and multiply, it's not really a command, but who needs commanded to have sex? No, it's an empowering promise. It's a pretty powerful promise. Anybody give me an approximate population of the earth right now? Seven billion? I'd say God spoke a pretty powerful word back in the garden. Uh, but that's another topic for another day. All I'm saying is, that God has wired us to desire. It's like anything. Let's take nuclear energy. 
Is nuclear energy good if it blows up an entire city? If it powers an entire city? Is sex good, enjoyable, and produces the next generation? Trafficking to make money off of the weakness of powerless people. Is alcohol good? Well, maybe I shouldn't bring that one up on Sunday. Let's just presume for the sake of the argument that we, we, we know what I know, and that is that the Bible teaches that alcohol in moderation is a good gift from God. It makes the heart rejoice, Psalm 104. But drunkenness is an evil that we're to avoid. See, in God's good creation, the good things that he has given to us can always be perverted and used for evil. But that doesn't make them evil. And desires can produce all kind of havoc in life. But that doesn't mean that desire itself is bad. It's good. God has created us to desire. And he tells us that, okay, parents, how many of you have ever given a gift to your child and seen the smile on the face and say, boy, that sure makes me miserable the way they enjoy that gift I gave them? No, when you give a good gift to your child and you see them enjoying that, what's it fill your heart with? And if you being evil parents do this, how much more your heavenly father, who's the perfectly good father, how much does he rejoice in giving you the good things that fill your heart with joy? He's not stingy. We're going to see that in a moment. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. So we see that, uh, that you ask for what you want, and that starts with being aware of what it is that you want, and your emotions can be your guide. See, when you're in touch with how you feel, it can help you be in touch with what it is that you really want. I've not always been in touch with how I feel. In fact, my wife has been better at knowing how I feel than I feel. I remember coming home, not so much anymore, but, but back when we were younger, I would come home and when I would walk through the door, she would say two words. What were they? What's wrong? And I would say one word. What did I say? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. And an hour later, after prompting and prodding, I would finally get in touch with what was wrong. As she knew as soon as I walked in the door, she could read me like a book. Uh, she could read me better than I could read myself. So how you feel can help you be in touch uh, with what it is that you really want in a situation. And then when you ask, just ask specifically. Remember, the New Testament says you do not have because you do not ask. So ask specifically. Notice what, what David does back in, in our psalm in 13. Uh, in, in verse 3, he asks in his relationship with God, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Answer me is what he's saying. Uh, he then says to him, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In the first, when he says, answer me. I remember my sister-in-law uh, raised four boys. Uh, my, my daughter-in-law is expecting in May, and Owen will be my mother-in-law's 21st great-grandchild. That, that's pretty good. Uh, out of three kids. Um, but, you know, when, when all three have four and all four have four, uh, it adds up pretty quickly. Uh, where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can remember my sister-in-law when she was raising the four boys. They weren't always paying attention. And I can remember her getting them by the cheeks Two hands, 
getting right in their face and say, look at my face. Then she knew that she had their attention. And that's, in effect, kind of what David does. David says, God, I feel like you're hiding your face from me. He says, look at me and listen to me. I need your attention, God. See, he's, he's asking something specific. He's asking that God reverse. Quit hiding from me and start paying attention to me. And with regard to himself, he says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is not like a mystical spiritual experience he's asking for. David, no doubt, you know, when, when you're down emotionally, it's easy to be down physically as well. And vice versa. We are a, a psychosomatic unit, a body-soul unit, and how we're doing in one area affects how we're doing in other areas as well. And uh, so when David says, give light to my eyes, uh, I'll, sh- I'll give you an example of how what this means. Remember when Saul was chasing the Philistine army and he put everybody under an oath and said, nobody can eat anything until we beat the pants off of the Philistines. Only one problem. There was this guy named Jonathan who happened to be Saul's son who didn't hear that everybody was under the oath. And so Saul was engaged in battle and, uh, and so was Jonathan. And at some point, Jonathan is hungry and he's walking along and he sees a carcass with some honey in it. And so he puts the honey, the staff in it and he eats the honey. And the text says his eyes brightened. That doesn't mean he had a mystical spiritual experience. It simply means his blood sugar went back up. When your kids were little and ill, where could you see it? You could see it in their face. You could see it in their eyes. And when they were getting better, you could see it. They, it, their, their renewal showed up in their eyes. And David is saying here, God, physically, emotionally, I'm worn out. Give light to my eyes. He's saying, renew my body, renew my soul, uh, or I'm a goner. And then he he also asks with regard to his enemies, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He doesn't want the enemy to come out on top. So he's asking that God be faithful to his promise in Psalm 2 and have David be the winner. So, two things in processing these negative emotions in a healthy biblical way. First of all, learn to say how you feel. And then based on how you feel, learn how to ask God for what you want. Then we come to the third. And uh, I mentioned my friend Bobby. And I told you I'd tell you a story about Bobby. Well, here's my story about Bobby. When Bobby and I were young, uh, uh, 9 to 12, this thing called Little League. We played on little, uh, two little league teams. Bobby played for American Legion. As you can imagine, just by the name of it, they were the best team in the league. I played for Shoppers World. <laughs> yeah, you got it. We were the worst team in the league. But we were owned by the guy who owned Shoppers World, Mr. Gubitz. And Mr. Gubitz was very generous. And tr- you know how after a little league game, you get treats? The treats that we got when we lost were better than the treats that anybody else got when they won. So there was a benefit to being on Shopper's World. Uh, Bobby and I were both good baseball players as kids. And of course, in in Little League, the dream was when you're 12 to make the all-star team. They would pick the best from each team and put together an all-star team because you actually got to travel as a 12-year-old to other cities And one city in particular you got to travel to was Elwood City. And what made Elwood City so great was their little league field had lights. Twelve-year-old kids playing baseball at night under the lights. So Beaver Falls, we're playing, I think Elwood City, it's the championship game. You know, it's the big trophy or the little trophy. We are winning. We're winning by one. There are two outs. The winning run is on the base. Uh, We only need one out. Bobby's in right field. I'm on second base. And there was a high fly ball out to right field. 
Now, Bobby was a good athlete. He knew that to catch a fly ball only took three things. Number one, you had to keep your eye on the ball. Number two, you had to get underneath the ball. And number three, when the ball hit, you had to squeeze the mitt. That's all it is. This was a high, I remember my dad telling me he could see Bobby dancing. This ball was hit so high. He keeps his eye on it. He gets right under it. The ball hits. He didn't squeeze the mitt. It popped out. We got the little trophy. He's still in therapy. (laughs) That story has always stuck with me. And uh, it's appropriate here. You see, you really do need to say how you feel. You really do need to ask for what you want. But it's all for nothing if you don't squeeze the mitt. That's the last strophe. But I trust in your unfailing love. Bottom line is... You have to trust God for the results. Let's look at those last couple of verses. But I trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing (coughs) to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You've got to trust God for the results. And sometimes the results are not going to be the results that you expect. But guess what? God's a bit smarter than you are, and he loves you a bit more than you love yourself. And so often, you think you know what you need and what you want and what is good for you, and sometimes you do, but sometimes we're just off base, and God loves us too much at times to give us what we want. And so you've got to learn to squeeze the mitt and to trust God. Leave the results In his hands. Notice two things here. Your faith and God's character. But I trust. Now, a little bit of Hebrew grammar. Hebrew is not like English. If I say walk, there's no subject. I've got to add a pronoun. I walk, you walk, he walks, she walks. Not so in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the pronoun is built right into the verb. So if I say halakhti, that's only one word, and it means I walk. If I say halakhnu, it's only one word, we walk. You don't need a pronoun. There's a pronoun here. When you add a pronoun, it's not just saying I walk. It's saying I, I myself, am doing the walking. And that's what it is with this trust here. But I... I, myself, am committing to trust. Very much an emphasis on the I and on the trust. My heart shall rejoice. It's a commitment. I will sing. You see, I don't yet have what I want, but I'm going to act as if I do. I'm going to walk by faith. Uh, I don't have yet. I'm not out of these dark emotions but I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to commit myself to taking the next positive step. I'm going to act on the basis of the fact that God is going to do for me the very best that I need. Your faith is really important. Keep in mind that there was a time when the gospel tells us that Jesus could not do many miracles in that place. And then it says the reason why was because of their unbelief. That's another whole series, right, on the interface between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But it's crystal clear that the Bible says Jesus could not because they didn't trust. And so your trust is really important. You have got to, you've got to squeeze that mitt and leave the results to God. But how do you do that? There's an equal emphasis in these verses, not only on your faith, but on God's character. Notice God's unfailing love. I trust in your unfailing love, in God's covenant loyalty to you, God's covenant loyalty to you in Christ. 
Which is why Paul says, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, we talked about that hymn, oh love that will not let me go. That's the love that God has for you. You can tell him you are mad at him. You can tell him you are disappointed. You can tell him you feel sorry. You feel sad. You feel grief. You feel jealous. Guess what? He still loves you because his love for you does not depend on how good you are, how happy you are, how free of negative emotions you are. His love for you depends on how perfect Christ has been in your place. And because Christ has been the perfect son in your place, the father loves you with a love that will never, ever, ever fail you. Oh, love that will never let me go. You may try to let go of God. God will not let go of you because Christ has loved you into that perfect love of the Father. But not only is God loving, he is also generous. The New International Version ends by saying, for he has been good to me. That's a little bit bland. Uh, the ESV says, because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's better. The New American Standard is similar, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Bounty, generosity, flourishing, abundance. If I were king of translations, the only thing I would do is tweak the tense there. I think David is not saying that God has in the past dealt bountifully with me, but even though I can't see it, and I haven't yet received it, I know that God is going to deal bountifully with me. He is not stingy. He loves to lavish good gifts. He loves it to come pressed down and spilling over into our lives. He's a good God. He's a generous God. He loves to lavish his children with the good things. that they. That's why Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life in all of its abundance. So a flourishing life is an honest life. It, it just deals face up with the fact that the path is not always straight. Life is not always easy. We feel cheated. We feel angry. We feel guilty. We feel sorry. We feel jealous. We have all of these feelings. It's part of life between the fall and the resurrection. And, uh, a flourishing life is honest about that. A flourishing life says how you feel. It asks for what you want, and then it squeezes the mitt. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and for it we are grateful. Holy Spirit, write this word on our hearts that we might uh, walk in the light of life, Thank you that Jesus has done everything necessary that we might flourish more and more in this life, even as we anticipate the fullness of flourishing in the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name.